how many of you have uh i i don't like a lot of crowd participation i'm just kidding but how many of you have heard of the day candle mass anyone a few people a few people so today is a uh, special day in the church. Uh, we celebrate certain days like Christmas and Easter and things like that. There are other days within the uh, life of the church and in the message of the gospel that we take a, sp a specific day with intention to remember what took place on that day. The way I like to, to often talk about it is, is such as... Uh, if you have ever been a decorator or you've decorated your home or apartment, many, many times we decorate our homes with the things or signs or symbols of the way that the world is, such as in the fall, we get pumpkins and we get uh, maybe wreaths of leaves and or planters instead of live flowers. They're or reminders of the fact that the season is changing. What happens in winter with Christmas? We get a Christmas tree. With the rest of the season, there's ice and snow. So in our home, we decorated it with uh, frosted glass and, and things like this. In the spring, you might bring in flowers, or in the summer, you might bring in flowers as, a, as an indicator of how we move through life. And when we talk about the thing, you know, decorating or celebrating the things that God has done, are not God's... Uh, actions throughout history is not the gospel much more of a world-defining thing in the life of, of the Christian than even the seasons. That is, although the seasons change and affect things that are outside of our control, the things which God has done through the gospel are to function as signposts throughout the year and, and the way that we celebrate life. And so it helps to uh, set up certain days uh, to celebrate uh, the things in the gospel, that it can be a way of creating intentional culture. And with that, today uh, on the church calendar is the day where we are reminded about the presentation of Christ. And I think there are a few things that um, this day is, is reminding us of, especially in light of the gospel story. That is, God was, was working to deal with the problem of sin. That is, the creation had gone away from his intended order and plan. And the story of redemptive history, that is, the unfolding plan of salvation that has occurred throughout history that God had accomplished through his dealings with, with the Israelites, uh, that plan, that story, affects our life more than anything else. And so, uh, with this with this gospel story, I want to look at a few different things. Again, this does uh, some churches consider this to be the end of the season of Epiphany. And if you were here with us, we went through Advent and then Christmas time, and then now we've moved on to Epiphany. And after today, we move back into what's called ordinary time. That is, there isn't a specific thing that we're supposed to celebrate. It's just. Uh, time for us to grow as as believers, time for us to, to live and go out into the world and, and establish God's kingdom through acts of mercy, acts of service. And so this season, as we looked at, uh, I think it was six weeks ago, maybe, no, four weeks ago, um, this season marks uh, a revelation of the nature of God. That That is, epiphany is a word that most of us maybe have never heard or we certainly don't use it often, but it just specifically means that something which that which was hidden is now revealed. 
And so Epiphany as a season, just like Christmas teaches us about God's desire to come to his people, Epiphany tells us of the Lord's desire not just to come to his people, but to make himself evident. God didn't just come and then hope that we would find him. He came and revealed himself in a manifest way and sought us out. And that's what the season of Epiphany teaches. With that, with the gospel story that we've read today, I want to focus on four separate elements. The theme of redemption and deliverance. Uh, This is a a kind of a profound idea within the scriptures. We're going to look at the fulfillment which was accomplished in this um, in this passage, we're going to look at the prayer that Simeon offered called the Nunc Dimittis. Um, this is a very, uh, traditionally a very common theme for songs and for celebrations within the church. And then finally, I, I want to just apply it to how does this story tell us about God's heart? What is the gospel message uh, in this day? So, um, if you have never read Exodus, or if you're unfamiliar with it, Exodus was a record of the actions that God had had taken to redeem his people Israel out of Egypt, and then establish for them a set of guidelines, cultural provisions, and moral moral codes, that, that is the law, to protect them and establish them as a nation. And you can think of uh, in Genesis 1 through 3, the creation of the world, that Yahweh had come and established order and put things in place. You can think of the Exodus, and not just the deliverance of, e- of Israel out of Egypt, but also the law that is given to Israel as a recreation in the Hebrew mind. God, Yahweh, who is not just the creator, is also the covenant maker and redeemer. And so in Exodus, what God had done, just like we were talking about cultural provisions, God had commanded the Israelites to do something concerning their firstborn son. And the male child, as we read earlier, was set apart to the Lord and anointed and ordained to the Lord. That is, God had said that the firstborn male was holy to the Lord or set apart. That is, the firstborn male was to serve for the family, just like the seasons changing outside and us decorating our house, just like celebrating certain times in the church calendar. The firstborn son was an event for that nuclear family and their extended family to remember the salvation that God had brought about for his people Israel. And after this time of purification, uh, a full 40 days after the birth, the mother would come into the temple, be uh, ritually cleansed or ceremonial cleansed by the priest, and then the the child would be offered to the Lord. That's what uh, is taking place here um, with Mary and Joseph and, and baby Jesus. So the redemption that is offered to Yahweh is a sacrificial offering as a reminder for both the the part of the participant, that is the person bringing the offering, and before the Lord about his redemption to Israel. In Exodus 13 through 16, we read, Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time you're to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You, sh- you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It is not enough, and it will never be uh, possible, as long as I'm an elder in this church, for us to adopt uh, traditional themes, whether it's Advent, Christmas, or, or etc., without explaining them. God had in his law... 
intended to train and teach his people through the signs and ceremonies that he established for them. That's why it says, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? The father of the home was supposed to explain to the child, what, what is our religion about? What are the things that we do in church? What do they tell us about uh, God, about his heart, about the way that he's accomplished redemption for us? May it never come to pass that we adopt tradition for tradition's sake without experiencing and retelling the story behind the symbol. And so Exodus goes on, for when, uh, for when Pharaoh stubborn, stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It's obviously clear that Hebrew uh, morality never includes the uh, taking of human life uh, as a sacrificial system. Uh, so the, the, the animals may be sacrificed to the Lord, but the children, of course, are to be redeemed, not sacrificed. It shall be a mark on your hand and, or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The redemption of the firstborn was to serve as a reminder that God had saved Israel out of Egypt. In giving the, the Lord a tenth of our ingathering, that is our income, which we, we just offered up our money to the Lord before uh, the reading today, we recognize that God originally is the source both of our skill at our job and our ability to maintain that, that income, that, that job, that career, what have you, and in such a way we, as to recognize and honor God as the first original source of that blessing. We... Uh, sing a song called the doxology from time to time. And the beginning of that song says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. The tithe is not a thing that is done in order to simply uh, follow the law or, or something like that. The Christian freely gives not only a tenth, but even above a tenth of his income to further on the purposes of the Lord, that is the, the funding of gospel missionaries, both into surrounding neighborhoods and remote lands. And so the tithe for a Christian is not doing a moral code. It is merely a, a indicator that we still consider God to be the original source of our ability to make money and, and provide for ourselves. In the same way, the redemption of the firstborn for the Israelites, they remember God not only as the creator, that is, he's the author of life, as we said in the creed this morning, but he is also the redeemer and deliverer. And this is the, the idea of the firstborn. And so this law, this pattern is totally fulfilled by Christ. And in this, in this passage, on this day, we celebrate that Jesus, through his parents' uh, obedience, completely fulfills the requirement of the law. And, and this, for us, is where we begin to see the element of, of the gospel. Luke 2, 22 through 24, When the time came for their purification, they brought him up to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
And so in the presentation of Christ, now that, that Christ has begun to enter into this theme of redemptive redemption of the firstborn, we have not only the remembrance of the deliverance of bringing the Israelites out of bondage, but now it takes on a new meaning, and it starts to point also to the redemption that Christ would begin to uh, release us from. And so Christ comes as the one, not who will just bring us out of Israel or bring us out of Egypt, that is a signpost or a symbol of sin and idolatry, but also would deliver us completely fully and bring us into the land. We who were in bondage to sin through the law have now been tutored to recognize our need for Christ, and through that, we recognize the wonder salvation, wonderful salvation that was culminated on this day. As Christians, we believe it is not just the cross that accomplishes salvation, although it is effectual, that is, the work of God that was done on the cross— Christ's sacrifice on our behalf was completed on the cross, but the defeat of darkness Christians everywhere maintain was not just on the cross, but even through his coming, his both, both the time of Christmas, his, the Annunciation, the continuing arrival of the shepherds and the Magi, and, uh, the slaying of the innocents, every signpost along the way in, in the life of the church throughout the calendar, we recognize that every time God was continually and progressively defeating darkness. The light of the world coming into the world through the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, was just the first domino to begin to fall. And so uh, Simeon, who is in our passage in this, uh, this reading today, he takes the Christ child up into his arms, and he recognizes God's salvation. Now, what I'd like to submit to you is Simeon does not have a New Testament idea of what salvation means when he's considering uh, speaking about Christ as the salvation of Israel. Uh, Simeon takes the child up, up into his arms and raises the child to the heavens, again, recognizing God as the author of salvation, and then from there begins to make a pronouncement. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. One of the things that we have been looking at time and again, uh, if you remember when we were talking about John the Baptist at the um, baptism of Christ last year during Theophany, that wonderful moment that John the Baptist has. Remember what happened the Holy Spirit said to John, the one whom you baptize and see the Spirit of God descend on and remain, that is the Messiah. And if you remember, at one point, John the Baptist is baptizing people at the Jordan. If you've ever seen one of the gospel movies, it, I think some of them do this uh, in a really good way. John the Baptist has this moment, can you imagine, where he's baptizing people and Jesus is coming to be baptized. And then John the Baptist sees the Lamb of God. And it's kind of like he wakes up out of the twilight zone. Everything else all just fades away. And he yells to his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how phenomenal this day of the presentation of, the, of Jesus at the temple is. Simeon goes up in the spirit in the temple. God had beforehand told Simeon, you will not die until you see the salvation of the Lord with, uh, with your eyes. Simeon has this moment. He's in the temple. He sees 
Mary, Joseph carrying Jesus to uh, the priest to offer up a redemptive uh, offering. And he sees the Christ child and apprehends and sees plainly the salvation of God. Now look at the gospel here. God had beforehand told Simeon by the Holy Spirit, you will see with your eyes the salvation of the Lord. And then in the moment, he's enabled to perceive. He says that he's letting him go or depart in peace. That's where we get the name, Nunc Dimittis. It, it, it's for the uh, the Latin words. Um, I'm not very good with Latin, so I won't uh, try to um, expound upon that. But what happens in this moment is Simeon not only tells of what he knows to be the case, that, that Jesus Christ is the salvation of Israel, but he also extends that salvation to apply not just to Israel, but to the whole world. He says that God has prepared the salvation of Jesus Christ, his life, he has prepared it in the presence of all peoples. Not only that, Jesus Christ is to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and he also will be for the glory of the people Israel. Now, this is where we begin to have a crisis in the story, of course. God had delivered Israel out of Egypt, but what happens before Moses even comes down from the mountain? Israel had been led away into idolatry. She had told Aaron uh, to make an idol, and they had given their gold, which was given to them by God, to be used for the adoration and and gilding of the temple. They had begun to use it for idolatrous purposes. And though God had delivered Israel out of the land of idols, the idols were still much uh, present in their own hearts. They didn't need just an exodus where the parting of the waters would lead them out of a land where they were oppressed. They needed the oppressor rooted out of themselves. They needed a true exodus of heart. And Simeon recognizes Christ as being the very salvation who would restore the glory to Israel. If you remember our times during uh, our discussions of kings, we noted how David was promised a king to always reign on the throne. And David had a accomplished mighty military victories and had instituted worship for Yahweh with music, singing before the Lord uh, night and day. And and yet after David, Solomon, his son, he builds the temple. This is kind of the gold, it's referred to as the golden age of the Davidic and uh, Davidic kingdom. But after this, all of the rest of the kings uh, lose ground in in terms of moral decay. Israel is led into idolatry. Uh, Her kings time and again establish altars to Baal, poles to Asherah, uh, and and lead the children of Israel off into idolatry. And so the glory had really truly been wiped out. It had been removed from Israel. Israel was not only delivered out of Egypt for their own salvation, but God had desired to make them, as we're told in Exodus, a special treasure a people who would be his people in the land, a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests, those who would live in the earth and reflect the nature of God and bring blessing to their neighbors, the surrounding nations. And that through Israel, all nations would see Yahweh as righteous and would be drawn to their light. But Israel had turned away. And so in God's dealing with the problem of sin in the earth, he attempts to establish Israel as a gem or a pillar of righteousness, but even she turns away from him. And how is God to deal with this problem? 
Just as God demonstrated his power over Egypt, the salvation that is brought through Christ would not only save Israel, but it would ripple through the earth and save the whole world. Not only will Christ form a true kingdom of priests, he will do so with Jew and Gentile. Gone are the cultural provisions, the, as Paul says, the wall of enmity which was hostile concerning the Gentiles. Christ's salvation that he will bring about is to reach all of the world. And before Simeon had prophesied this and spoke of this, it was not clear. Although there were signposts away that we noted when the Magi came to, to see Christ, both Herod and the priests of Israel didn't come to see Christ, but the Magi who were looking for the Lord's word to be fulfilled had come. Just like that, Simeon says, this salvation, the revelation that's going to come through Christ, is not just going to be for Israel, but also will be for the Gentiles. Simeon then prophesies concerning how this is to come about. Luke 2, 34 through 35, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Isn't that strange how our gospel today has become so divorced from the recognition that when God comes on the scene, there are people who do not obey his word. There are people who hear God's word and obey, and yet there are people who continue in the hardness of their heart and turn away from God. Though God is completely loving and merciful toward them, patient in all his ways to those who are idolatrous and evil, some of them do not turn. And so when Simeon says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising, we may think, well, that sounds terrible. The fall of many in Israel? I thought I thought Simeon had just said that Jesus was going to come and restore the glory to Israel. Nevertheless, there are those who will not recognize Christ as the Messiah. And he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. What's often overlooked, we talked about this in the book of uh, Acts when we went through it. In the book of Acts, it does say that many, many of the priests and Pharisees and Sadducees actually turned to Christ, were baptized, and and entered into the church. That's often overlooked. However, it is also true that many did not join. Many did not rise, but rather fell. And likewise, Jesus Christ is considered to be a sign that is opposed. What is this opposition? Christ was opposed not only because he exposed the deeds of men as darkness, which they were, but also because of the nature of salvation. He's considered in 1 Corinthians 1 by Paul to be a stumbling block to the Jews. Why is he a stumbling block? The Jews, some of them, had begun to treat the law as it shouldn't be treated, as a moral code that by doing the law they would have perfect their own righteousness. Now, the Bible is clear that no one will be justified by the law, and it was never God's intention for the law to be the means by which people were saved in the Old Covenant. Uh, Abraham, before the law, Galatia, the, the whole book of Galatians is about uh, understanding that idea, but before the law came, grace came. That is, before the law was given to Moses, after the Exodus, even before that, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. And so, just like today, grace always comes before the law. Not only did God bring Israel out of her bondage to Egypt, he also had beforehand promised Abraham faithfulness, righteousness, that he would be a blessing to all nations. And it is in that promise 
that God has interacted with Israel, not according ever to their performance of the law. Nevertheless, Jesus is a stumbling block of offense because the Jews saw themselves as needing to merit themselves before God by completing the law. Jesus, on the other hand, was the only one to be able to complete the law and satisfy the law's requirements. But not only that, he's a stumbling block of offense to the Jews, but he's foolishness to the Greeks. And by foolishness, I mean that the philosophers of the day, those who were living in late antiquity, had no ability to reconcile vicarious redemption on the behalf of another as being uh, involving me or, or you by this means called faith. That is, to philosophers, to the rational mind, to the unnatural mind, or the unspiritual mind, the natural mind, that is, the foolishness of the cross is plainly evident. It makes no sense. Why would God consider someone who has faith in someone else's action as being righteous before him? And yet, this is the gospel. Simeon even indicates where this is going. He says to Mary in, in these verses that a sword will pierce through her own soul. We know this plainly because we know the rest of the gospel. This is speaking nothing other uh, than of Christ being crucified on the cross. Mary will undergo the worst uh, heartbreak that is possibly imaginable for a parent, that their child would be murdered right before their eyes. And yet, Mary is told that this will be done so that the thoughts and deeds from the hearts of many would be revealed. And this is what Christ did, not only in his earthly ministry, as times uh, went on, various times he said, uh, the writer of the gospel says, you know, knowing their thoughts, he never entrusted himself to, to them, or knowing their thoughts, he knew every man to be evil, etc. Jesus his work on the cross reveals the thoughts and heart of the hearts of men as evil or or dark. And so Christ is not just a sign of revelation, a sign of salvation. He also is a sign that some oppose. And yet in the midst of this, this is the gospel. Like the Israelites, we too are in bondage. Just like the Israelites, we lived completely unable to to accomplish the things that God had told us. Though he gave the law to Israel to define the way they lived as a nation, how man would live with his neighbor and fellow man, how they were to establish their economy, how they were to, through the things like the year of Jubilee, the redemption of widows, they were to not have any poor among them and to not have any families cut off from the memory of Israel. God had established these provisions for Israel, and yet they are just like they are in Egypt. In Egypt, they had to make bricks without straw. But we, who know the, the, the law of God intuitively through, as Romans 1 mentions, our conscience and viewing the visible world, that is, the, that the creation itself speaking about God, but we are blind, and we, though we don't make bricks, we are un unable, because we're dead in spirit, to do anything concerning righteousness toward God. And in this place, the redemption that of Jesus by his parents at the temple speaks about the salvation that's going to come through uh, the gospel. Though the law of God is good and holy, Romans 7, sin took advantage through our flesh, producing all kinds of wickedness. Though we know that we ought not to do something, Paul says, we yet fall into it, we do it again. And what does he say is the deliverance? 
the necessity of this perfect and holy law and obedience of Christ fulfilling the law is expounded by Paul in the book of Galatians, as I mentioned earlier, Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Basically, like the picture, you can imagine as if there's this water level or or ceiling, if as it were. The people of God, although they, they had been redeemed by the Lord, they turn back to idols again and again. And though they have the law on a tablet of stone, the law is not on their hearts. How is God to redeem them out of this situation? He sends his son to be born as a man, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. As if this ceiling is, is something that can only be broken by busting through the bottom of it. And this is what Christ has accomplished for us. Though through Christ's perfect obedience to God, he has accomplished a wonderful salvation for us, not to allow us to return to the idolatry that we lived in before during our time of slavery, but rather that we would be delivered even from bondage to sin and being made alive completely to God. And this is what Romans 7 indeed says. Romans 7, 4 through 5, Likewise, my brother, you, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is what the gospel says. We, you and I, we were under the law, and we were unable to complete any of its requirements. And though the law is righteous and perfect and holy, Sin took advantage through the law, bringing out that, that as, as Paul later says in, the, in that same chapter, that though the law speaks against covetousness, sin took advantage and produced all sorts of coveting. That is, the law demonstrates sin as utterly sinful. And Paul says that through the death of Christ, those who were under the law have died to the law. They've died to sin, and they have now been remade, recreated, in the image of Christ. This is the gospel. That is, God has always wanted a people who would live before him in spirit, in truth, that they would walk before him with full uprightness of heart. And now not only has he redeemed them from the law, he also has put his spirit in them that they would bear fruit for God. And this is what we celebrate when we celebrate the presentation of Jesus at the temple, that Jesus is for us our perfect righteous obedience, and that through his fulfillment of the law, he completed the law totally, died and was resurrected, and that through that death and resurrection, we by faith enter into that victory that he's accomplished for us. We no longer have to attempt to come before God and clean ourselves up and do the law before we before we come before the Lord. He has accomplished a wonderful victory for us, and we should never atur- again turn to attempting self-righteousness before God. This is the gospel in, uh, in a nutshell, as it's understood through the celebration of this day. I hope that as we continue uh, the next few years, um, looking at various days that the church has considered to be important, I hope that you would see the gospel through the celebration of that day. Um, 
that is my heart and desire. My, again, as I, I said earlier, I never wish to celebrate a day or, or do some sort of tradition without seeing the true meaning behind it. And may God give us eyes to see the light of revelation, not just for the redemption of glory on Israel, but a light of revelation for us, the Gentiles. We do ask, Lord, that you would come upon us today. We've, we ask that you would give us, like your wonderful Sim, uh, servant, Simeon, that we would have eyes to see your son, Jesus, that we would be able to, through your word, understand the wonderful mercy and love which you have shown to your people, Israel. Not only that, Lord, you have accomplished a great salvation so that the ends of the earth would come to know and worship you. Lord, we do thank you for the wonderful salvation that Jesus accomplished. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to see these days as being signposts and special moments of progress where you continued to unfold your plan of redemption. Lord, we do ask that you would form within us biblical Christianity, that we would not be devoid of content, devoid of understanding what your word plainly says, and that it would become for us food to meditate on, that, that by meditating on these truths, how you were covenantally faithful throughout history, that we would see and savor your son, Jesus. We do ask that you would enlighten our hearts today and deliver us not just from Egypt, but deliver our hearts as well from all idols. God, bring us out of sin and bring us into your wonderful promised land. Fill us with your spirit once again and give us hearts that throughout this whole year would wish to walk before you in uprightness. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.